TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Pierre Luigi Serraino about some of the qualities that extremely creative people have in common. The creative knows who he or she is. That's where so much of the confidence comes in. Here's Debbie Millman. Louis Kahn, Eero Saarinen, I.M. Pei, Richard Neutra, George Nelson. These were some of the biggest names in American architecture not so long ago. In the 1950s, they and dozens of other major architects participated in a psychological study at UC Berkeley. The researchers wanted to know, what makes a person creative? Why does one person go on and lead a creative life while equally talented people never reach anywhere near their potential. This fascinating study had been largely forgotten until this year when Pierluigi Serrino published The Creative Architect Inside the Great Mid-Century Personality Study. Pierluigi, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much, Debbie. I'm delighted to be here. Pierluigi, you live now in the San Francisco Bay Area, but I know from your accent you weren't born there. Tell us about your upbringing a little bit. That's all very true. I am uh, Italian-born, uh, born and raised in Sicily, Messina. Uh, early on in my life, I was very interested in English culture. I had a UK fever, so to speak, until I discovered California. And at uh, age 16, my father let me and my brother go by ourselves to the United States, which is unthinkable. Now I have a 12-year-old son, and we have a hard time letting him go to, you know, the grocery store, so to speak. <laughs> yes. So uh, it was it was extraordinary. But uh, California was a groundbreaking experience in the early 80s. When did you decide you wanted to be an architect? Well, uh, the story goes that I wanted actually to be a musician. I'm a guitar player. I graduated from the Conservatory of Rome. Uh, but my father, who is a was a structural engineer, you know, had a very matter-of-fact approach to life. And they say, you know, I don't think you're going to make any money of it. How about architecture? And I never thought architecture existed at all. And I realized that there was a world above eye level. And I started looking up and I said, oh, my God, all this stuff is out there. Then I realized that it was an art form. 
You started your education in Rome, where you studied architecture, but moved to the Southern California Institute of Architecture and then the University of California in Los Angeles for your master's degree in the mid-90s. You started your own firm in 2009 and have devoted quite a lot of your practice to rehabilitating and remodeling mid-century modern residential and commercial properties. Why that type of work? You know, I was brought up in a culture where uh, the architect is a humanist. So you think very broadly about issues of the built environment. And I was at UCLA. I made a remark during a class uh, where they were showing a picture of uh, the Kaufman House by Richard Neutra that was taken by Julius Schumann. I said, I don't know if we like uh, the picture or if we like the building. And uh, then the teacher then approached me and said, Schulman has this big portion of the archive no one has ever seen. Would you be interested in uh, looking at it? And so I did. I wrote him a letter and he called me. And out of that came out Modernism Rediscovered. And what, what happened was I realized I was talking to this image maker, looking at these extraordinary images, that the mid-century was a period of uh, immense creativity. It's been very much bashed. And so I thought, well, we need to look at this legacy a little more carefully. It's a bit like the 12 Angry Men. I'm not sure this is so bad. <laughs> Let's look at it a little closer. And so I think of this more of a design surgery type of thing. That It's not landmark material, all of it, but it's not anonymous either. So you want to intervene so you can extend the, the message that is scripted in it. You are also an educator as well as an author of four terrific books. And your most recent effort is a remarkable and fascinating book titled The Creative Architect, which is about a fairly unknown episode in the annals of modern architecture and psychology. It is an investigation of a 1950s evaluation of creativity with subjects including Aero Saarinen, I.M. Pei, Philip Johnson, and 37 other major mid-century architects. What made you decide to write this book? And how did you find out about the study in the first place? Yes, I was approached uh, by the third son of Richard Neutra, Raymond Neutra. And he said, I found the files of my father of the creativity study. And I think you should look at them. And once I realized who was involved, then... Uh, the scale of my obsession changed dramatically, and it, that would be all I could think about, learn the, the behind-the-scenes thoughts of these greats. The 1958 study was conducted at the Institute of Personality Assessment and Research, or IPAR, as we're going to refer to it in the rest of this interview, at the University of California, Berkeley. And it was an effort to map the minds of extraordinary architects by deploying an array of tests, some really, really crazy ones, reflecting current psychological theories. And you write in the book that the researchers of the study started with basic questions such as, what makes a person creative? What are their motivations and drives? What are the environmental conditions and personality traits required to actualize creativity? Is it possible to identify creative individuals before their talents materialize? Pierluigi, this book is the story of one epic attempt to get at the heart of these tenacious questions about human creativity, and it is truly a tour de force. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You write about how the research team, which was led by a man named Dr. Donald McKinnon, he was the director of IPAR, 
and how he labored to answer these questions at a time when research in psychology was marking a significant cultural shift away from the efficiency studies of the time. What motivated him to undertake a study of this kind? Donald McKinnon was the head of the assessment unit uh, for the OSS. The assessment method which was used for the study was very much the result of World War II culture. Uh, The shift was into creativity because this was the period of the Cold War and the Russians were uh, entered the space uh, race and ultimately the Sputnik was what accelerated everything. Dr. McKinnon sought the guidance of William Wilson Worcester, who was a renowned Bay Area architect who had been the dean of the College of Environmental Design at UC since 1950. And Worcester assembled a five-member panel that included four of his colleagues, Donald Olson, Vernon DeMars, Joseph Escherich, and Philip Thiel. And this group was charged with selecting the architects and ultimately chose most of the greatest architects of our time. How did they get these architects to participate? That's a fantastic question. They were all architects, the folks that were selecting the other architects. They had a template. They would give a number based on four categories and then a commentary. And they would do this exercise in isolation. They wouldn't talk to each other. So I actually found all the commentaries and I all know. the evaluations. We're going to share and, some of that in a few minutes. And no one had ever seen them. <laughs> so I remember speaking with Ellen Olson. She's going to turn 100 next year. Donaldson died. And I said, Ellen, I found them. I said, oh, my God, he did. And all mimeographed that. pages. Yes. And, you know, because, you know, <laughs> Don was, uh, was a huge uh, disciple of, uh, of Walter Gropius. And here I see Donaldson talking about Walter Gropius when he was alive at the peak of their power. So... People there came in their true colors. So they said things that uh, others known at the time, they, they would have been major breakdowns. Uh, oh, my people God, would talk to each other. Yes, <laughs> I mean, total gossip. I know, respect. it's amazing. It's absolutely astounding. So, so then uh, they identified uh, the individuals that are most creative by how many of these five members are nominating these, and they identified 13 people. And the person that had the highest marks, obviously, was Franklin Wright, who was at the time 92. And so they started with Frank Lloyd Wright. They wrote a letter to him. And uh, Frank Lloyd Wright never responded uh, to that letter. And um, then they went to Mies van der Rohe, who was number two. And Mies, you know, two-liners said, thank you, but no, I'm busy. And all this in their amazing letterheads. Because right, we have all they're these gorgeous. Letterheads. Oh, and they're God. unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievable to letterheads. To see all of them all at once. But a lot of them said no at first and then ultimately changed their minds. They did. Uh, uh, through pressure of Worcester. That's where Worcester's political influence uh, came in. Worcester was in the committee that selected the Arch in St. Louis. He picked Saarinen, and Neutra was against it uh, at the time. He was also in the jury. So uh, he was uh, extremely um, committed to the the whole Finnish and Scandinavian type of uh, aesthetic world. And eventually Saarinen relented. And after Saarinen accepted, then Johnson jumped it right in. And everybody wanted to be in the round of Aero Saarinen because he was the third most creative architect considered at the time after uh, Mies van der Rohe and Philip Johnson. Then there are multiple attempts to recruit the Rolling Stone, and he said no. Uh, Paul Rudolph the same. They tried many times. Uh, Yamasaki said he was coming, and then he couldn't. Cancelled, Cancelled, yeah. and uh, Victor Gruen the same. Charles Eames said, I can come Saturday and Saturday, but I cannot Friday. It, can this still work? And he said, no, he can't because it has to be three days. So uh, it all came down to 
the architects accepted because they wanted to socialize. They knew that they were going to see each other, and ultimately they were going to help each other in other with specific alliances. So uh, it was very political, but it worked. Let's talk about the big white elephant in the room. There were no women in this study, not one, not even Ray Eames. Florence Knoll, right? Yes, they could have, right. Uh, yes. No, right. but there are a number. There, there are two issues here, the gender issue and the professional issue. You cannot say that Buckminster Fuller is not a creative person. Oh, and the the things that were said about exactly. Buckminster Fuller. <laughs> exactly. That he was a mechanic, Yes, right? <laughs> so he's just only interested in joinery and stuff like that. Or, or uh, the same thing about Conrad Boxman yeah. and, and uh, of other characters like Bruce Goff. I mean, I, I don't even know how to quantify this guy. I mean, something right. which, uh, you know, it's very parochial, ultimately. But it gives you an idea of how territorial the profession was at the time. The scientists identified three creativity profiles they wanted to analyze, and each was embodied in distinct activities. So the first creative type was someone whose work was a direct expression of his or her inner state, and that included artists, poets, novelists, and playwrights. The second creative type was someone whose output was dependent on a link between external reality and stated objective goals. I just love that state, that <laughs> sentence. And that was mathematicians, physicists, chemists, electronics engineers, and aeronautical engineers, and they formed that set. And then the third creative type was a mixture of the first two, a person who would effectively strike the balance between an inner drive to self-expression and the motivation to externalize and engage with the world, constraints and all. And architects and music arrangers were deemed representative of this group. Why music arrangers? Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure about music. Well, the, the music <laughs> so arranger, it's a, yes, but you know, the, the musician, uh, uh, a composer uh, fits squarely in the first type, but maybe the mu- musician arranger uh, works within constraints of someone else's uh, uh, score and the arrangement is at the service of something else. Uh, there is a, there is no complete freedom about it. And there's also an element of uh, uh, financials uh, that mm, has to do yes. with that. I like to quote this definition that uh, Henry Cobb uh, gave uh, a few months ago in a podcast for the AIA that architecture is a contaminated art because Why is that? Uh, because uh, it deals with real estate interests. You know, it, it, it is completely wrapped into the regulatory system. It embodies square footage, uh, but not all square footage is architecture. So you are essentially working a number of constraints that are purely external, matter of fact, uh, and then the fact that you can organize them in ways that are particularly impactful in in someone's uh, inner lives. So, I mean, I I was uh, stunned that Louis Kahn accepted this because Louis Kahn is one of the most spiritual individuals uh, that uh, architecture has ever seen. And uh, he said, yes, I'll be, I'll be happy to be here. <laughs> I mean, he, he hadn't done all the great things that he, he had done, but he was clearly on the way there. Now, he was voted number one on this list of evaluations by his peers, the other architects in the study. But he voted Richard Neutra number one on his evaluation. So I thought that was a really interesting selflessness. Very much so. I found that, I, and I found it really odd because so much of the architecture of Neutra is uh, about weight. It's so earthbound. 
and uh, he had stated that Le Corbusier one of his uh, favorites, uh, whereas Neutra has a lightness in it. Uh, I mean, it's essentially an intersection of planes and glass, and there is uh, not a real resonance with the work of Kahn. Kahn is primordial in its uh, impact, and, and Neutra was interesting in the sciences, in biology, in uh, organisms. Uh, so I, I, I couldn't quite figure that out. I was very surprised. And I shared these uh, with Raymond Neutra, obviously was very delighted. And at the same time, was shocked that others put him at number 35, like Quincy Jones. Said, oh, he used to come out of our house all the time. I can't <laughs> believe right. anybody thought about my dad was 35. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually learned a lot more in this book about the background of the architects as well. It's not just the study. Sure. For example, I had no idea that Louis Kahn financed his college education by playing the organ in movie houses. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's a picture. And it's a picture, but it also tells you uh, the really extraordinary difficulties that uh, Kahn had to overcome. Uh, as opposed to someone like Sarin, and they had different challenges. Uh, well, they, he grew up wealthy. Well, you know, Donaldson uh, used to say, because he worked uh, in Edel's office when Eero was there, and he said, you know, Eero was uh, born with a golden spoon. But at the same time, uh, he had that internal challenge of dealing with his father's legacy, which was uh, it's part of the life history, understanding why people do what they do, and everything was uh, relational to Elia's work. The role of the salesman seemed to be absolutely critical to these architects' success, as did the role of self-promotion. Yes. And you write about how, from the very beginning of his career, Frank Lloyd Wright pursued media exposure with relentless resolve in the effort to carve out his own relevance in the field. And this took him decades to achieve. And you also write about how Philip Johnson did the same and his ability to surf the media tide with complete mastery overrode the oscillating reception of his own work. So it was interesting how much these men were involved in the creation of their own legacy beyond the buildings that they were creating. There's no question. As a matter of fact, I wrote this passage uh, partly because a former teacher of mine who was a mentor and a, a close friend, Catherine Smith, is actually writing a book on the exhibits that Frank Lloyd Wright did during his lifetime, which there are about maybe 132, which is an extraordinary amount. I mean, how do you mythologize yourself beside the beauty of your work? And Johnson knew that the media creates the reality of the arts to a large extent. And so... So ahead have, of his time. Ahead of his time. And at the same time, you <laughs> he realize... He did really well on Instagram. <laughs> uh, extraordinarily. And in fact, everybody is interested in the gossipy aspect of the Johnson's legacy you know, used to give out $500,000 and say, I'm really stingy. And you you go on the internet and $500,000 in 1959 is $9 million. $9 million that you can give away, which means you you might have 10 times more. (laughs) So for you, architecture is a fun game. It doesn't mean that he was any less uh, involved. He knew that architecture mattered, but he didn't have to play the organs like Louis Kahn had. You know, Louis Kahn was in the tenement in Philadelphia. And to be able to carry uh, this message of universality uh, despite all this beating that you get left and right, uh, I mean, it takes a tremendous amount of tenacity, tenacity and intensity. That's really the common trait of all these uh, folks. Uh, you know, Ralph Rapson was born with, with, a, with a malformation of the arm. He was amputated. He lost his mother. And everything became architecture, just a way to work. Where can I challenge the thing where otherwise I'm going to throw myself from the Empire State Building? You know, <laughs> just going to do architecture. So it's really uh, astonishing how you bring the, all this energy that comes from life experiences and you sublimate them into an idealized form, in this case, with architecture. 
I wonder how much of these architects' own mythology and building of their own personas contributed at the time to how they were received publicly. And now, 60 years later, if that correlates with their greatness. You are spot on about this because architecture is too conscious about its own media constructions. Mm. There are only two architects uh, that are still with us. Victor Landi, who's completely lucid, and then I.M. Pei, who is almost 100, and uh, I understand he's in declining health. But uh, I was able to reach Victor Landi. I showed him the rankings, and he started laughing about uh, those of Johnson. Oh, (laughs) I mean, he himself knew he wasn't a great designer. I just can't believe it. (laughs) But I said, but so what? What does it really mean, all this? Uh, You know, I mean, even the creative struggles with with that. I mean, even these guys didn't agree on who was the best. Yes. And they were the best. Exactly, exactly. I mean, uh, mathematics, if you will, has a common core. And architecture can express on common core in multiple ways, and there is no agreement who can actually be uh, the greatest. Philip Johnson ranked himself number one, but he was highly contentious. Worcester wrote this about Johnson. A disciple of Vandero who has bettered the master, but completely disregards human beings. (laughs) (laughs) The candor in this book is incredible. And since we're on the topic of Philip Johnson, you discovered that of the 40 architects, Johnson was the most challenging to interview, apparently, and he was defensive and guarded, nervous, fidgety, restless, and ill at ease during the interview. And I'm going to quote your findings here. Johnson showed many classic features of the manic, self-centered, irritable, jumpy, flight of ideas, arrogance, use of humor to defend against serious consideration of anxiety-producing topics. (laughs) It's amazing. Yes, it's amazing. Johnson virtually did not answer two-thirds of the questions. And this was a a two-and-a-half-hour interview. It would be two to three minutes silent. And then he woke up erratically and then go back to his seat. And and the few answers that were recorded were actually quite... uh, self-deprecating, or they were kind of mocking the whole question. He said, when did you know that you arrived uh, as an architect? And he said, oh, it's all luck. Right. And, uh, and, and clearly uh, he didn't believe that. Well, he didn't believe in that. Exactly. I mean, part of it is, uh, uh, is he actually taking the, uh, the experiment seriously or is just mocking the whole culture of psychology? My two favorite exercises that the architects were put through were the mosaics. Yes. I love that Saarinen's was completely white. Yes. I love that I think it was Johnson specified the type of green that the tile should be as opposed to what it was. Um, and they're all reprinted fully in, in your book, and they're gorgeous. But I do think my favorite exercise was the squares with the two lines. Yes. And the architects needed to create little illustrations with these two specific lines always in the same direction and as many as they could come up with in a certain amount of time. Yes. And the inventiveness of these drawings, I think, really shows their greatness. I feel the same just in terms of quantifying the number of drawings. Uh, I think Howell Hamilton Harris was able to fill two and a half pages uh, whereas Johnson only, uh, and even Saarinen uh, only did a barely one page. And, and the drawings had to be credible. 
They couldn't be letters. Uh, they couldn't right. be squiggles. They had to be something uh, figures that Inventive. you recognize exactly. You had to, to create something. So, from this. and part of the the reason why they did that study was because they wanted to quantify how rapidly you could generate ideas in a short amount of time, given the same constraints. The idea that uh, there are multiple solutions to the same problem is something that Saarinen was a big advocate about. But generating the, a supersonic speed in this respect is uh, the forte of the creative. And many of those ideas are, to a large extent, uh, tied to your life history. The final chapter of your book is titled Creativity Unveiled. And here you quote Eric Erickson as saying, the creative person has solved the problem of his own identity. Yes. That's magnificent. <laughs> it is. It is. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Even with all these conflicts, uh, the creative knows who he or she is. That's where so much of the confidence comes in. I know who I am. I, I don't have to please necessarily anyone. I can have sort of a codependent relationship with the world because I want to be acknowledged, uh, but that doesn't inhibit my actions. Because uh, many of these uh, individuals were acting in a countercultural situation, at least at the very beginning of their career. Their creative achievements was the sustaining the beating of a normative culture that tries to silence those voices until you overcome them. And so you you cannot have someone who is wishy-washy be a creative person because um, everything about the field you're part of has told you otherwise. You write that creativity entailed a complex set of cognitive and motivational processes which are involved in perceiving, remembering, imagining, planning, and deciding. And in this realization of the study, the role of memory arises as a predominant factor in that creativity is the reassembling of existing knowledge. Yes. So it's that combinatorial creativity. And, and that is a fantastic uh, insight that they had. You know, architects don't invent technologies. They repurpose technology. They specialize technologies. We don't have the labs or the funding that the military have. But the, the militaries don't know what to do with glue, the super glue, right. besides uh, attaching pieces of uh, different kinds of materials. So here comes someone like Eames and, uh, and creates a, a whole world of uh, enclosures and, and uh, surfaces. The same thing Saarinen uh, started using large-scale models after his experience with General Motors where they're making these enormous models for the cars. So the, the office changes dramatically. We still operate like that. Frank Gehry brought uh, the software Katia in the 90s from the aeronautic industry because it wasn't used in, in architecture. Now he does the form that he does. I mean, when I see Gary, I always see shingles overlapping, and then, uh, and then they become different surfaces. So the, the certain kind of uh, ideas uh, arrive much earlier. So repurposing and reorganizing pieces of knowledge is uh, very much uh, at the core of the creative. I was also struck by the line, the more creative a person is, the more he reveals an openness to his own feelings and emotions. Yes, and that's something that it's uh, expressed through what is called the femininity index. Uh, you know, I asked Ravenna as a lady, what do you mean by femininity? And she said, uh, well, you know, uh, people that are open to their emotions, or even their intuition, and we call it the femininity index. But this index applied to people who externally were very masculine, like Jack Warnick, was like like a cowboy almost. <laughs> a lot of but, testosterone. But, but, well, <laughs> but, 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 you know, he designed the memorial of JFK. So... There is some enduring values that architecture has in it. There's something beyond the contingency of the problem at hand. 
Luigi, after all the work that McKinnon and his team did, they failed to bring the bulk of the findings to light after so much effort. Why is this really only coming to the public's attention now through your book? Well, uh, first off, the book that McKinnon and uh, Hall, were the two primary investigators uh, were going to write, was going to be very different from the one that I wrote because I also wrote about the background. McKinnon never revealed who the architects uh, were. <laughs> Ravenna said there was too much testosterone in the room, so mm. territoriality about the study, uh, the IPAR um, founders uh, got a lot of media attention, so the book was going to be, had been announced multiple times, but they never uh, pulled it together. That's sometimes is the price that you pay for the academia. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you implode in your own research and data, and you, you have too much. I mean, I'm not a mid-century architect, or I'm advocating a return to it. I, I think that there, there's a lot to learn from that period that is uh, still relevant to our time, and that informs the, the work that I do. Well, I'm so glad you were able to bring this work to the public's attention. It really is one of the best books, if not the best book I've read all year. Wow, thank you. Pierre Luigi, thank you so much for writing this remarkable book, for bringing this study to the public, and for being on Design Matters today. Thank you very, very much. Pierre Luigi Saraino's book is The Creative Architect Inside the Great Mid Century Personality Study. And you could read more about the book and the author at pierluigiseriano.com. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick, published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.